This morning's gospel readings comes from Matthew and Luke. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Then from Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Jesus, I'm sorry, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your might, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sat him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kelsey. And so if you are joining us for the first time today, or the first time in a little while, um, as you may have caught on, we've been going through these statements that Jesus makes at the beginning of his most famous sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So a crowd comes around and Jesus, as teachers did, would set down to teach. I wish I could do that. Um, And he began to speak, and I think what they must have been expecting was that Jesus would make uh, these pronouncements that maybe affirmed what they already thought it meant to be a part of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus says, maybe contrary to what they thought, he opens his mouth and he says, blessed, that's where we get the word beatitude, blessed are those who are spiritually poor. Blessed are those who who mourn over their sin. Blessed are are those who are meek. He he says these shocking proclamations. And so these aren't, and sometimes they've been taken this way, these aren't things that you kind of read and look at and go, okay, um, let me check this one off the box, and now I've got to be this one in order to be in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying those who, who are like this, those are the ones who are, and every one of them will... Every one of these characteristics will apply to them. 
So it's not that there's some who are meek, and there's some who are poor in spirit, and there's some who mourn, and there's some who are peacemakers, that all of these apply to those who belong to Jesus. And so they're good for us to pay attention to. And they help us to to look at our own lives and go, are these things uh, manifested? If I'm united with Jesus, are these things being manifest in, in my own life? And so this morning, we come to the fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Before we think about it, let me pray for us. Father, once again, we want to pause and give you thanks. We pray that we would never grow weary of of being astounded at the mercy that you have shown to us, the grace that you have shown to us. Father, that the awe and wonder that comes from seeing that you have not treated us as our sins deserve, but your son Jesus has had compassion on us and has moved towards us in compassion. Father, it's inevitable that we become people who also are merciful like he is merciful. And we pray that your spirit would continue to produce that in our own lives, in our own hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was catching up on the news uh, a while back and, and kind of combing through some articles and deciding, you know, piecing through. We have so much news now. It's like, what am I supposed to read? So you kind of look for headlines or look for titles that sometimes catch your attention. And there was this one title in particular that, that jumped out to me. And over the last couple of years, this, it, it wasn't um, that special or that astounding. But for some reason on this particular day, as I read this headline, I read this title, um, I really... I really paused for a few minutes before even wanting to click on it and open it and read it. And the title, the title was this, White Evangelicals Are the Most Anti-Refugee Group in America. White Evangelicals Are the Most Anti-Refugee Group in America. And I did click on it and began to read and realize there's a lot of data to support that, that headline, that title. And you may have been, we've, you know, we may have become so sort of used to titles like that or used to headlines like that that we just don't even think twice about them and scroll right past them. But what is so striking about that statement is that what is a refugee? A refugee is someone who has has had to flee or been forced out of their own country because of um, natural disaster or war or persecution. And what are they doing? Well, as their name implies, they're seeking refuge. They're seeking someone to show them mercy that they're not receiving in their own land. And so the the title, the headline, White Evangelicals are the most anti-refugee group in America, is sort of an astounding statement. It's painful to say this, but if you think about what somebody maybe who arrived in our country and didn't know anything about America, didn't know anything about Christianity, if they were to just simply sort of observe and look around, we have to ask the question, what would they, what would they, what would be most apparent about who we are? What would stand out 
the most. And it is, it's painful to say, it's sad to say that maybe one of the prominent conclusions that a person like that might come to is that they might say, well, you know, you have different groups of people, and it seems like this group of people, these who they call themselves Christians, they don't seem very concerned with, with mercy. Or maybe those who are, are suffering, or those who are hurting. Now, why do I bring that up here? Well, it may be kind of obvious, but many of you I know very well, and I know that many of you are very concerned with mercy, and you're some of the most merciful people that I've actually ever met. But I bring it up because most of us fit into this category to some degree or another, that the predominance of this room is white, that whether or not you like the terminology, um, most of us would probably, to some degree, fit into the definition of what most people would call evangelical. And I think that we have to be aware of the fact of how we might be perceived in the world. And it brings up a serious question, what does it mean for me to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to, to, for me to be connected with Jesus. And, and, and what is so striking about these Beatitudes is how strange they, they, they sound. They were strange in Jesus' day. And I think we've gotten used to them, but they were very strange. They were striking in Jesus' day, and maybe we've gotten used to them too, so they're not as striking to us, but they should be striking in our day, because if we look at our society and we even look at the church, what we hear sort of booming at us is... Is, is blessed are the proud. Blessed are those who've accomplished much and they, and they wear it on their sleeves because they will, they will be prominent in this kingdom in which we currently live. And Jesus comes and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Or we might hear booming around us, um, Blessed are those who live life with no regrets. Blessed are those who who don't ask for forgiveness. They don't have to ask for forgiveness. They don't have regrets in life. And Jesus says, blessed are those who see their own poverty of spirit to such a degree and see their own sinfulness and see that one of the reasons the world is the way that it is is because we are a huge part of the problem. Blessed are those who mourn over that and who mourn over their sin. We might hear around us, blessed are those who, who tell you everything they know when you first meet them. And they want to make sure um, that you know all that they know. Blessed are those who are, who are straight shooters, right? I, you know, I'm going to say it like it is and let the chips fall where they may. And if it hurts, it hurts, but it's the truth. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who are gentle. Blessed blessed are those who see the weaknesses of others and and stoop down. That's true strength, Jesus says. They stoop down to meet them on that level. We might look around and, and what we see and what we hear is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the good life. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst and work and toil and strive and accomplish so that they can have a life that looks beautiful and looks comfortable and looks blessed on the outside. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are shocking statements. And I think that maybe the driving force, one of the driving forces behind so much of we, what we currently see in our own society and, and even in the church, which is more of what I'm concerned with, and, and I think you should be too, that what we see is the driving force is fear. It's fear. We're fear, fear that maybe my rights will be infringed upon Fear that maybe um, my money or my time will be taken away from me. Fear maybe at the end of the day that my life is going to be interrupted and I won't get the life that I deserve. And so we, we turn inward instead of outward. Listen to what one commentator said, Sinclair Ferguson. He asked this question. He says, how is it? that we claim to be Christians and yet show so little mercy? Why are we so self-seeking? Why do we choose a lifestyle of convenience rather than a self-sacrificing lifestyle of mercy? Is it because we have felt our own need of mercy far too little? Is it because we have only a superficial understanding of the riches of God's kindness to us? There can be no other explanations. Those who have been forgiven much, they love much. Those who know they have received mercy, who really know they have received mercy, they show mercy. And according to Jesus, an unmerciful Christian is an oxymoron. An unmerciful follower of of Jesus, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't exist. It's unthinkable. And so this morning, let's think about for a few minutes um, what mercy is. And we'll see how the merciful are blessed, and we'll see how to cultivate maybe mercy in our own lives. So what is mercy? I think the simplest way to define mercy is that mercy is... This word has kind of fallen out of fashion, but the Bible uses it this way. Mercy is pity. And a pity is is to not look down on someone and kind of go, they're so, like we think of pitiful as they're so um, awful. But it's to have, it's the same word that's often translated for Jesus when he looked at the crowd and he was moved with with pity. He was moved um, with compassion. That mercy is pity or compassion or empathy that doesn't stop there but it actually is coupled with action. So mercy looks at, as Tanner was saying earlier, mercy looks at the effects of sin that are crippling. Whether they're things of the world, disease, whether they're even the result of the own, their own person's action, but you see somebody who is in a state of suffering and you empathize with them so much so that you want to show them mercy you want to help them, right? And so, now there's obviously, I mean, in the New Testament, we can go to a million different places to look at examples of mercy. And, I mean, we, most prominently, we can look at Jesus, right? And we look at Jesus and the way that 
he has been merciful, the way that he humiliated himself, the way that he came down, the way that he humbled himself, the way that he moved towards, his eye was always out for those who were at the end of their rope. But I think one of the most like, explicit and, and pointed examples of mercy and Jesus explaining this to us is in the parable of the Good Samaritan that Kelsey read to us. Now, last fall, we looked at the, Good, the parable of the Good Samaritan when we were going through the parables. We looked at it in great detail. And so if you want to go back and listen to that, it was last October. So I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but I do want to remind us of what Jesus is doing in this parable and why he tells this parable. Because there's a, there's a man who comes up to Jesus, the man who says, I have a question for you, Jesus. And this man, is an, he's a lawyer, it says. that he, That's not what we think of as a lawyer. He is an expert in biblical law. That he studies the Bible. That he loves the word of God. He loves the law of God. And he's an expert in the law. And he asks Jesus this question. The question is this. What, do I, what should I do, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Maybe another way to ask that question is, who is blessed, right? Who is part of the kingdom of heaven? What must they do to be a part of the kingdom of heaven? And he thinks he already knows the answer to this question. Have you ever ask a question because you already know the answer to the question and you want to see if the other person knows the answer to that question? It happens in the classroom all the time, right? So you ever ask that question and go, I wonder how they're going to answer this. I already know the answer to this. Well, that's what this guy is doing. He asked Jesus this question and he already thinks he knows the answer. He already thinks actually that he has what it takes. And Luke tells us that he's testing Jesus. That really what he wants is to go, I want to see if Jesus' answer lines up with what I know is the right answer. And so I'll ask him this question. And so Jesus, as he often does, asks him a question in return. He says, well, what is the law, Mr. Law Expert? You know the law. This is what you do. You study the law. What is the law, and how do you read it? How do you interpret it? And so this law expert answers back in a way that would have been right and a way that would have been customary that he summarizes the moral law of God and puts it into two parts. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to him, that's right, go do that, right? And you think at that point, just having those words come out of your mouth, um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, the first thing is I should love God with every single bit of my heart and my soul and my strength and my mind. You think right there you would have enough reason to kind of pause and question yourself. But the, he, he skips over that and he asks Jesus a follow-up question. Well, let's define neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Because at this time, the religious leaders would have had a very specific and narrow view of who their neighbor was so that they might be merciful to those, that they might love those who fall within that definition. And their neighbors would have been people who looked like them and talked like them and acted like them and believed what they believed, but their neighbor certainly would not have been defined as a Gentile. And it certainly would not have been defined as as a Samaritan. 
that we have some writings during this time that would say that, that Samaritans are worse than swine, that they were worse than pigs, that they were seen as those who had um, fallen to syncretism, that they had taken some of the true teaching and they had mixed it with pagan teaching. And so um, that would not be categorized as a neighbor. I don't have to love them. I don't have to show mercy to them. And so Jesus tells this story. Well, let me, let me tell you a story to explain to you what, I, what it means to love your neighbor. And this story is, is kind of shocking because what we find is that this man is robbed. He's lying by the side of the road. He's left for dead. And the people that the law expert would, would respect the most, the priest and the Levite, pass him by. But then here comes the Samaritan. One that would have been despised, that you, you would be unclean if you're around. And he is the one who shows love toward his neighbor, even his enemy. And how does he show love? He's merciful. He's moved with compassion for the man on the side of the road, so much so that he goes towards him and he gives of himself to this one. He bandages his wounds. Um, He takes him to be cared for. He leaves him money. He comes back later and checks on him. And this is why in the early church, oftentimes Jesus was referred to as the Good Samaritan. Because what they were saying when they called Jesus the Good Samaritan is they were saying... You know who we are? We were people who were dead on the side of the road. We were left for dead. We were without hope. And Jesus had compassion for us. Jesus saw us. Jesus had empathy for us and moved towards us and showed us love and compassion. So if mercy is compassion that's driven to action, let me ask this question. What type of action should it take in our life? What should that look like? Now, I had seven things, all right? I I whittled them down to two, all right? I had seven, uh, if you want the rest, I'll email them to you. But I had seven things. I whittled them down down to two. What does it look like then for us to be merciful? And the first one is this, and this this is pretty elementary, but it should be. And we need to be reminded of it. I need to be reminded of it. That that mercy always remembers. That mercy always remembers those who are poor, those who have less than we do, and those who are suffering. That mercy always has an eye toward those who are suffering under the weight of of things that you aren't currently suffering under, is another way to put it. Mercy has an eager eye that's always looking out for those who are suffering, and especially those who are not like us, who are maybe different than us in some way, who we might not normally associate with. Because here's the thing, it's, if you're, if you take care of your best friend who is sick, or your spouse, or your child, you should. It's expected. It's commendable. It's not that it's not merciful, but you should do that. Um, If you show mercy towards somebody because what you know is that they are going to repay you for it, 
That's not necessarily what showing mercy is, but mercy makes us empathize even with the most desperate people and even people who we might not normally want to associate with. So the first reaction is not, there is someone who's suffering, why don't they get their act together? We don't believe in karma, all right? Karma would say, well, what goes around comes around, you're getting what you deserve. Mercy looks at another person who is suffering and says, and sees themselves in that person. So much so that they are moved to show mercy and compassion upon that person. Mercy says, I too am desperate. And if Jesus had not shown me mercy, I would be without hope in the world. This is why Jesus, one time he's sitting at a, a dinner party Jesus got invited to a dinner party by somebody who was very important, and Jesus wrecked dinner parties, like, all the time, right? And so he's saying, I mean, this is a good example. I mean, don't invite Jesus to the dinner party because he's going to do things like this. He's going to say, let's talk about who we invite to a dinner party. And he says this. He says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, thankfully... If you study the history of the Christian church, what you find is that Christians have taken Jesus very seriously. And that they have, we have a long history of being merciful to the poor and merciful to the suffering. And for good reason. Because we have been shown mercy. But I am, the reason I started with the illustration I started with this, this morning is because I am a little worried about the state, and we should be, of Christianity in our own context and in our own country. That we should be worried about it. Because we seem to love the American dream more than we love our neighbor. And we seem to compare our lives to those who have more than us and wonder why our lives don't look more like theirs rather than comparing our lives to those who have less than us and being in awe that we have as much as we do. To be merciful means that we're always, that we're careful and we're deliberate and we're considerate of how we handle the things that God has given us. Our talents, our gifts, our money, our possessions, because what we realize is that they are gifts from Him and He has given them to us in large degree so that we might show mercy to other people. But secondly, I told you just two things. What is, it looks like always having an eye towards those who are suffering, but it also means extending full forgiveness to those who have personally offended us and who seek our forgiveness. It's not getting any easier, right? <laughs> to be merciful is to offer full forgiveness to those who have personally offended us. Let me, let me um, tell you a story I read the other day. I was reading um, a Christian counselor who was talking about one of the clients that got referred to them. 
And this client had been referred to this counselor because several other counselors were like, we don't know what to do. And so this woman comes to see this counselor and in their first session, he listens to her story and he can tell that she is very angry and she's very bitter and it's wrecking her life and she's depressed and she's burning bridges left and right and after listening for a long time, what he realizes this is that she's, very, she's been very hurt. She's been very wounded by her parents. And so towards the end of that first session, he says to her, um, well, where we're going to go, where we want to go in the following weeks is we want to start working towards what it might look like for you to forgive your parents. And he said she shot up out of her chair and she grabbed the chair and she threw it across the room. That didn't go so well, right? And so when she left that day, he thought, well, that's the last time maybe I will see her. But she showed up the next week. And he thought, well, this time when she comes in, I'm just going to, he said, we're going to pick up right where we left off last time. I think that for you to heal, we have to talk about what it will look like for you to forgive your parents. And he said she shot up out of her chair again, she cussed him out, and she walked out the door and slammed the door. And then she came back the third week. And so once again, he said, I think we need to talk about what it looks like for you to forgive your parents. And he said that there was a softening that she didn't say anything. She just got up and she left. And then she came back a fourth week. And when she sat down, he opened his mouth and she put her hand up and stopped him. And she said, I think I need to forgive my parents. And he said, it's such a great question, why? And she said, because what I have done to God does not even compare to what, is not to be compared to what other people have done to me. The way that I have sinned against him is so much worse than anything than anyone has ever done to me. When we get to that point, that's poverty of spirit, right? That's honesty with ourselves. That's seeing ourselves as we really are. That's getting to the point where we're mourning over it so that we begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness, where we begin to be merciful, where we begin to be people who go, I can show forgiveness to other people. Because I understand that what I have actually done is so much worse than what anybody else has even done to me. So how then are those who are merciful blessed? This is interesting and it's different than the other ones. Because the meek inherit the earth, but the, the blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And when you first read that, bless, so how are, they ble- how are the merciful blessed? The merciful are blessed by receiving mercy. And so you ask this question maybe if you've been in church for a while that you kind of go, is Jesus saying only those who show mercy will be, who will be recipients of mercy? Yes, that's what he's saying. He says something similar in a prayer that we pray all the time where he says, forgive us our debts just as we have forgiven those 
who have sinned against us. That Jesus is saying, is he saying it's only those who show mercy are the ones who receive mercy? Yes. But is he saying that your display of mercy is the thing that moves him to compassion to show mercy upon you? No. Now that's confusing to us. But how do I know that? Because it would contradict most of what Jesus taught and most of what the New Testament taught. Moreover, it would contradict the very thing that Jesus came to do, which is what? Is to show mercy to people who don't deserve it. So if our receiving mercy for God were his response to our display of mercy, let me ask this question, would any of us receive mercy? You can answer out loud. No. (laughs) No. Here's the question then. Will there be anyone in the kingdom of heaven who who hasn't received mercy? Will there be anyone in the kingdom of heaven who, who has not received mercy? Is there anyone there who didn't need mercy? You can answer out loud again. No. So it naturally follows and necessarily follows that those who are in the kingdom of heaven are ones who have received mercy, which means they would have been merciful in their own lives on earth as well. So those who receive mercy are merciful. And those who are merciful will receive mercy. They are inseparable. If you have received mercy, what Jesus is saying, the evidence will be in the fact that you will show mercy. That it will happen. It may be slow in coming, but it will happen. That you will be merciful the more and more we understand that we have received mercy. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, if, if I know that I'm a debtor to mercy alone, if I know that I'm a Christian solely because of that free grace of God, there should be no pride left in me. There should be nothing vindictive. There should be no insisting upon my own rights. Rather, as I look out upon others, if there is anything in them that is unworthy or that is a manifestation of sin, I should, auto, I should have this great sorrow for them in my heart. All of these things follow inevitably and automatically. If I know I'm a debtor to mercy alone, then I will show mercy And I know what we're thinking. It's scary to show mercy. What if that person that I show mercy to hurts me? What if if they take advantage of me? What if it inconveniences me? What if it takes of my own possessions? What if it takes of my own time? What if it takes of my own gifts? What if it takes of my own talents? And do you know how over and over again the New Testament responds to that? Peter says, who can harm you if you are zealous for what is good? There's nobody who can. What Paul says, if God is for you, then who can be against you? And then Jesus more simply just says, go and do likewise. So how do we become more merciful? I'll end with this. I think that it has to start with every day when we wake up. And we greet a new day, and we're shocked by it. How am I allowed to live one more day? What a mercy, right? What a gift 
What a grace of God that He would allow me another day in His world. If we start every day in awe and in wonder of the fact that God has shown us mercy, that means that we have a deep examination of our own heart so that we are astounded of the fact that He has been this good to us. Mercy starts with reveling in, the, in God's kindness, in God's goodness, in God's mercy that he's shown to us. And what it means is then we just simply ask this question, what does it look like for me to practice mercy today? Maybe, maybe it means we ask God the question, who can I show mercy to today? See, mercy, mercy is a practice. Mercy is a discipline. It doesn't necessarily just come naturally, but it should come automatically once we understand the mercy that's been given to us. But it means this. It means we're going to have to snub our nose at fear. Because fear is going to say, you need to guard your own life. You need to protect your own life. You need to make sure your stuff and you and yours are taken care of to such a degree that if you show mercy, it might hurt. And we have to snub our nose at fear. And the way that we might snub our nose at fear is that we simply, this is kindergarten, we simply trust God with our lives. And we say that I have a God who is my good shepherd. And my good shepherd so cares for me that I actually at this very moment, not in the future, not down the road, not in the age that is to come, right now, I lack nothing. That is how good he is to me. That is the most liberating, freeing thought that a Christian should have in their mind every single day. And so as we end this morning, I want to end in a way that's a little bit different. You, everybody has a pew Bible. I want you to grab your pew Bible and I want you to open up to Psalm 23. And I want us to end this morning by speaking these words together. Because they are an antidote to our fear. And if they're an antidote to our fear, then they are ones that free us to see the mercy of God in our lives. And the more we see the mercy of God in our own lives, the more we are moved to be merciful. Let's read this together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let me pray. Father, 
Help us to believe. Drive away our unbelief. Help us to believe that goodness and mercy, your goodness and your mercy, will follow us all of our days so that you might free us from the crippling fear that we sometimes have. That leads us in a path of of inwardness, away from mercy. Father, make us more and more into people who look like your son Jesus, the one who has loved us extravagantly and so well and sets this table before us this morning. We ask it in his name. Amen.